Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And on this episode, I'm a laser beam burning down from the above, baby, on a suicide mission of love, because it's SST 238, the Swa Winter album. And I hope you're feeling Swa today, because we've got an extra special guest, Brent. You bet we've got Phil Van Dyne on the show. Wow. And here's a sweet tip for everyone out there, all the listeners. If you've got an SS Tree band out there and you're short a guitarist, just call Phil. Yeah. Yeah. Phil Phil can fill in. Don't worry. He's the Philo machine will come and learn all your songs and just tear it up with your SS Tree band. Anyways, man, like I said, I hope you're feeling suave. But before we get into it, I'd love it if you hit us with some spiels. I'm not just feeling suave. I am suave. But good. Yeah. Yeah. I have a spiel. So, um, it's that time again, Ryan, where I need to clean up my phone. So we're going to, I'm going to limit it to 10 and it's not just my phone. It's, you know, records and, and tapes and et cetera, but I'm going to limit it to 10 per episode. Okay. Okay. But I'm still going to do it alphabetically. So I'm going to give you 10 records from the A section. And, and you're, and you're getting rid of them even though you still like them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you just I, make, you're making just, room. Yeah. I'm making room for more. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Okay, so um, you recently had a spiel where you added a few late additions from last year into your honorable mentions. Yes. And I have one to add that might have even made my top 10 had it been on my radar. And this made a few people's lists too, so you, you've maybe heard of this, Ryan. It's the Art Gray Noise Quintet. No, I don't know that one. Okay, it's self-titled. Uh, it's on the label Bang Records. As a listener recently pointed out to me, I've referred to Va Bang apparently many times as an Australian label, but they're in fact a Spanish label. They just happen to release a lot of great Australian music. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the debut full length, a bit of a super group. Uh, Stuart Gray, a.k.a. Stuart Spasm of Crunt and Lubricated Goat on guitar Whoa. and vocals. Whoa, okay. And also main songwriter... Uh, Andrea Siso of Twin Guns uh, on guitar, Skeleton Boy of Woman, uh, Rich Hutchins of Live Skull and of Cabbages and Kings, mixed and recorded at BC Studios in New York. Probably wow. ch checking off some boxes here for you, hey, Ryan? Yeah, what a pedigree. I got to yeah. check that out. Uh, originally formed to perform at an after party for a New York screening of the Amphetamine Reptile documentary, The Color of Noise. Mm -hmm. Fans of Lubricated Goat will dig it. It's noisy, scronkin', swampy, beasts of bourbon, bad seeds-esque rock with really great lyrics. Whoa. Yeah, you'll like it. I'm on that. Okay, Anacruzis, Reason is the album. I was talking a few weeks back about Jeff Wagner's book on prog metal, Mean Deviation, which I read a long time ago, but kind of flipped through again because I've been listening to his podcast, uh, Radical Research, and also I read his great book on Fate's Warning. Um, that's where I first read about this amazing St. Louis band. I've been obsessed with them ever since. All of their albums are just total classics, but this one just makes me think of that era. Like, it came out in 1990, so it it's thrash but it's super inventive and fearless just it makes me think of like skateboarding and the era where you could just listen to anything yeah you know like from jane's addiction to dead milkman to megadeth and it was all cool or some trees maybe yep 
And and nobody can scream quite like the vocalist for Anacrusis. Ken Nardi is his name. Uh, and yeah, like I said, bonus podcast shout out to Jeff Wagner and Hunter Ginn's excellent podcast, Radical Research. They did a really good deep dive on Anacrusis a few years back. Okay, Ryan, I know what you're going to say that this should be under, you know, filed by last name, but whatever. My phone, my phone puts it alphabetically, so by first name. So Adrian Blue, Desire of the Rhino King. Oh, yeah. Uh, you, so, you know, like I said, you're just going to have to get over the fact that it's Adrian. I'm over I'm over the fact that it's a, I've tried for decades <laughs> to get you to file your records properly. My, are, my records are filed by last name. It, but not on your phone. Not on my phone. So they I are not. No, so they're no not. So they're that. not. No, no, no. There, you do have control of it, man. <laughs> you can, you can file things by alphabetical by last name on your phone. It exists. Well, some of this is on Spotify, which does it. Oh God. Some of this is streaming too. Do they on streaming uh, services? Do they file stuff by first name? Yes. Oh God, that is ridiculous. Just another notch against it, hey? For you? Oh my God. Yeah. Okay, so this is a 1991 comp made up of tracks from his first three albums for Ireland: Lone Rhino, 82, Twang Bar King, 83, and Desire Caught by the Tail, 86. It's just phenomenal, arty rock, and my mention of it comes with a rock doc recommend, Ryan. What, the King Crimson one? Yeah, I'm yeah. on a King Crimson-related artist kick right now after watching In the Court of the Crimson King, King Crimson at 50. The totally excellent documentary by Toby Ames. Uh, I totally loved it. It kind of flashes back and forth between past and present. Many previous members, some of whom were unceremoniously sacked, like Adrian, yeah, uh, get interviewed. It's pretty clear Robert Fripp is a savage in every way. Mm -hmm. uh, like the guy still practices five hours a day, every day. It's inspiring. It's sad because it also documents the death of Bill uh Riflin of cancer. It kind of really shows the sacrifice the Bambebers make to to realize Robert's vision. It's really quite the documentary. Have you seen it? I have not, but I, I plan to see it as soon as it's... I don't know, where did you get it? It was like on some online uh, you rent a thing? You can buy it. You can buy it now? Yep. Oh, okay. Well, then I'm just going to go and buy it. I mean, I've only seen King Crimson once. I saw them, I think, in like 2015, 2016. It was the tour where they, they had like three drummers out front yep. in, a, in a row. Tony Levin, Jocko. It was an amazing, amazing concert. It did everything that I want King Crimson to do. It was great. I was just listening to a bunch of Crimson a couple of weeks ago. Never gets old. I love every era. Um, and I buy every uh stupidly expensive live box set just because there's always something cool going on. So I, I definitely got to get that show done. Yeah, you'll love it. Uh, a recommend of yours, possibly in relation to the We Can Be the New Wind and or Grave Goods spiels that you've done. And that's Afterwards. Oh, yeah. Self-titled 1989 LP on Samich Records. Yeah, yeah. Samich was a short-lived label of Ian and Alec Mackay's uh, younger sister, Amanda along with Eli Janey of Girls Against Boys. That was their label. Interesting for a DC band in, in that the members weren't in a zillion other bands. Yeah. Definitely Dank Nasty, New Windy. Uh, it's good. A bit of a lost band, maybe. This 12-inch EP is all that's ever come out. It's never been reissued. 
That is true. It took me a while to track it down, but it's good. And another possible new win discovery of yours, Apology, mm-hmm. 1988. Yeah. Well, kind of, sort of. Kind of, sort of. I discovered them via Grave Goods, and then there was a, a spiel on them in We Can Be the New Wind. There's also a spiel. I was wrong, actually. I got to do a correction. Um, when I was spieling about We Can Be the New Wind, that great book from last year, I think I said that there was not anything on Grave Goods. There is a micro blurb on them way at the end of the book. So, uh, correction. Okay. Uh, this is a 12-inch EP, Pass You By, on Wishing Well Records. Yeah. Um, this is good. Boston Band, uh, similar to Afterwards, both musically and also in the sense that they released this, just this one EP, and that it's never been reissued. Uh, these bands could use a reissue, you know, with unreleased material. Kind of surprised it hasn't happened. Mike Gitter, creator of the Triple X zine on vocals for this band. Yeah. This is an era where, like, I just think of that Dag Nasty album, Field Day. This yeah. is this is the Dag Nasty Field Day sound era of bands, and I love it. Yeah. Okay, uh, number six is Alice Cooper, live at the Apollo Theatre, Glasgow, 1982. I love almost all eras of Alice. This is from an un- under-documented and somewhat overlooked era, the Special Forces Tour. Alice was in pretty rough shape, I think, personally during this period. But check out the amazing YouTube footage from a Paris show on this tour. He was really going for something different, and I think it worked. Uh, Special Forces is underrated as a studio album, and this is a, a well-recorded set, a radio broadcast with a, a nice mix of classics and songs from um, that album and, and kind of the, the previous ones to that. It's been bootlegged for years, so it's cool to have it um, actually officially released by Rhino, uh, even if it was for Stupid Record Store Day. <laughs> as as an Alice super fan, I can't help but notice your comment that you like almost every era of Alice. What what's the era you don't like? Like like Hey Stupid? Is that yeah. what you don't? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I some you. of those songs are even good live, but just you know, he was definitely going for uh, some radio hits and to fit in with the hair bands, you know. Yeah, like Wayne's World era. Yeah, Alice. I got gotcha. you. And some of the new metal stuff, like Brutal Planet, isn't very good either. He put out a new metal album? Yeah. Oh, like like Motley Crue did too, right? Yeah. Or something? Yeah. yeah. Didn't they all do that? Well, most of those bands either tried to sound like Alice in Chains, or they tried to sound like Pantera, or they tried to sound like Nine Inch Nails. Those were kind of the, the three the, options you the had. The three paths. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> oh. right. Well, you know what? You got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Number seven, The Awful Truth, self-titled. Their one and only album, 1990, Metal Blade. Again, I either read about this band in Jeff Wagner's uh, Mean Deviation or heard him him mentioned on on the Radical Research podcast. Maybe both. They fit nicely in with those early 90s bands that were under the metal umbrella but were almost more like a modern prog band. There's Mm. a bit of faith no more. Uh, At times, prong. The guitarist David Vaughn, Oler King, uh, he's amazing. Clearly a jazz background. Sometimes he's almost Henry Kaiser-esque, actually. This is actually a recommend for you, Ryan. You might like this. Um, The Awful Truth, self-titled. I checked, and it's up on YouTube. Um, Check out the song No Good Reason, and then especially the song Hire and Report Back. Okay? Oh, okay, man. Assignment. Yep. Here's one you'll appreciate, Ryan. Appliances SFB. 
Of course. Their self-titled album, SFB, released in uh, 1984, their debut. This is a band I had heard of, but never really heard, I don't think, until watching that Smart Studios doc that we spieled about a few weeks ago, and I'm totally, yeah. I'm totally obsessed with them. I love everything about this. I saw someone online compare them to the birthday party meets dead Kennedys. And it's actually pretty accurate, I would say. It's post-punk, definitely would have been an influence, I'd say, on all of the Chicago noise rock that was to come. 100%. Uh, William Seibacher's guitar playing is definitely like East Bay Ray's surfy influences with Keith Levine's riffing in Pill. Uh, vocalist Tom Laskin makes sure they stand out, I would say. Uh, kind of reminds me, actually, of Merrill Ward sometimes. Super over-the-top and theatrical. I'm I'm really obsessed with this band right now. Appliances yeah. SFB. Yeah. While you're at it, check out the Them Green Door record too. I'm going to. I'm yeah, gonna check it, it all out. Get into that. I feel like I recommended them to you way, way back when I was recommending another band that kind of ha- holds a similar place for me called eighty six. I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember eighty six because it's got that Jesus Lizard tie in, that band. Eighty six and appliances is SFB. I don't know if I discovered them around the same time, but Okay, I'll add 86 to my list. Is it oh. uh, written numerically or like spelled out or the numbers? Eight, the numbers 8 and 6. Okay. And you and I remember playing it for you and you liked it and now you forgot about it. Now rediscover it and report back. I for sure will. Yeah. Okay, um, Agit Pop, The Calm Three Sessions. Early 80s art punk from Poughkeepsie, New York. Uh, with releases on the Com 3 label, Twin Tone, and Rough Trade. This is the a comp of their first two, 85's Feast of the Sunfish and 86's Back at the Plain of Jars. Uh, this is a band that's been on my to-do list for a while in that they, you know, they get compared to bands that I like and you like, like Gang of Four, Wire, or The Minutemen, but they've just eluded me. I'd say if you fall into that category, this comp would be a good place to start. Sounds like they they like they were a real force live, like super confrontational, you know, on one of those bands that would just almost intentionally try to alienate their audiences. Lots of weird and unconventional instruments. Uh, they switched instruments live. Are you a fan, Ryan? I don't really know them that well. I've heard some, yeah. but I, I haven't dove deeply. Sounds like I should, though. You would love this for sure. Uh, and then my last one is Agitation Free. Malesh is the album. Vertigo, 1972. This is proggy, kraut rock with connections to Tangerine Dream and Ashra Temple. They have a long and interesting history. This album, their debut, I guess, has become you know considered to be a minor classic, and it, it's really cool. Psychedelic, hypnotic, weird. I got hip to this through an episode of the That Record Got Me High podcast where David Lewis brought it in as the album he wanted to discuss. David owns a record store in Columbus called Elizabeth's Records and used to play in a band called Elizabeth, I think out of Austin. Um, He compared his band Elizabeth to Sonic Youth, but I dug around and could not find anything about his band Elizabeth. Hmm. Anyways, it's another great episode of a great show, and you should check it out along with the agitation-free record. Wow. It sounds like I have to check out like 50% of those 10. Yeah. That's cool. That's all I have, Ryan. What do you have? I've got Wheel of Spiels, man. I finally caught up. 
Well, first, hold on, hold on. Let me give you. Okay, so I'm ready to I'm ready to rock on uh, a spiel about books, new releases with five on the SS tree, a Watts on base spiel, and Rock Docs Dio edition. Which do you pick? Rock Docs Dio edition, man. <laughs> Look out. Yeah, I knew it. I knew it. Anyways, so let me uh, let me spiel about a couple of docs, and then I'll get into the Dio doc, and then I'll let you spiel about it. Who are we kidding? Anyways, first one I want to mention is called Punk Rock Vegan Movie, made by Moby, the electronic uh, electronic musician who was in uh, hardcore bands way back when. It's free on YouTube. It is really fundamentally about activism in punk rock, but specifically with respect to animal rights and veganism. It has interviews with Ian Mackay, people from the New York hardcore scene, of course, uh, Porcel, Ray, Walter, the Krishna Core type of uh, folks, uh, Captain Sensible. It's well done. It's worth your while. It's a tough watch, but it's a good watch, and it's for free on YouTube. Hmm. Uh, the other one I want to mention uh, before we get to Dio is... Um, you probably saw this, Brant, but there is a film about the Sonics coming out oh. called Boom. You can get some info on it at sonicsfilm.com. It's a film by Jordan Albertson. It's coming out this year. Hopefully, we'll be able to access it at some point after it's done all like the festival tours and all that kind of stuff. Right. But I can't wait to see that one. That's going to rule so hard. Um, they're obviously like a hugely influential band. Still love them. I saw them like five, six years ago now, and uh, they blew everyone off the stage. Uh, just amazing. Hugely influential. Got to see that documentary. And then finally, of my three rock docs, I did want to mention uh, over the holidays, this is a, going a, a back a bit, but I did watch the Dio documentary, Dreamers Never Say Die. This is not a banger films documentary, but it's, it's of that quality. Yep. It, it's done by, uh, two, uh, two fellows, Don Argot and Damien Fenton. They're both, uh, documentary filmmakers and they did one on Dio. And this, this film has got everything. Very cool story. I came in totally blind, totally. Like, I don't know anything about Dio. It has the obligatory Sebastian Bach lip syncing, singing along scenes in it. Um, it's really good. I definitely did not know much about the two Sabbath albums that he sang on, Heaven and Hell and Mob Rules. I checked them out. Those are cool listens. I'm not a huge metal fan. I'm actually not even that big of a Sabbath fan. I do like Sabbath. I'm definitely not much of a Dio fan. But after watching, um, I am a fan of Dio the Man. I am a fan of Dio the Man. I did uh, definitely enjoy checking out some records that that deal is you know rainbow uh sabbath the Dio records um even the heaven and hell record i checked that out i mean the guy can sing um and he seems like a very you know he was a very driven uh creative musician um and he's got pipes for days he blows ozzy way way out of the water with uh his vocal ability just amazing so i mean it's not i'm not really a uh, you know, a dragons and, and scepters type of lyrics guy, but it's a cool documentary. So now take it away, Brent. Okay. Uh, it's called dreamers never die. Didn't I say that? I think you said dreamers never say die, which is the name of a black Sabbath record. Never say die by the way. Oh God. Well, I got, see, I got it wrong. There and there's, you go. there's more than two Sabbath albums with Dio on vocals. If you count the live ones. No, there's a, a studio one from 1991, 1990. 
Isn't that isn't that as the band Heaven and Hell though? No, that's way later. Oh, De- really? Dehumanizer was a reunion album they did, and it's awesome too. So just for our listeners, I got all that stuff wrong on purpose <laughs> so that Brand can correct me. Keep going. I mean, yeah, technically speaking, of course he blows Ozzy away. I, I would compare it to like that's like comparing David Lee Roth to Sammy Hagar. Sammy Hagar, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Sammy Hagar is um, an infinitely better vocalist, but not as great of a frontman. Mm. You know what I mean? No. Diamond Dave is like the greatest frontman of all time. <laughs> I don't know. Now you're now you're attacking me for my love of Van Hagar. <laughs> no, no, it, it's okay. I'm just saying, like, it can be. You know, a vocalist doesn't have to. You know, it's not all about the the. The pipes. the pipes, I got, yeah, 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 and your your ability and your dynamics. I get, I totally agree. I mean, some of my favorite vocalists of all time are not even that; they're not even technically singers, you know. So I, I get it, I get yeah. it. But I mean, having said that, especially the the Heaven and Hell album, like the first one with Dio on vocals, is is pro- possibly the best Sabbath record. Really? Hey. Yeah, it for sure is as good as anything they did with Ozzy. Mm. So. You know, if you hear nothing else, and that's one you could probably get into, Ryan, like the, the Dio stuff, I get it. I mean, it, he, it's, he literally was like slaying dragons on stage and, and, uh, you know, the lyrics were pretty over the top. I listen, listen, I listened to Heaven and Hell and Mob Rules. Yeah. I had never, I had never heard them before. I checked them out. They're good records. It's not something that is going to be, you know, a, a go-to record for me though. They're good. Like I appreciate them. And I would have never checked them out having not watched this documentary. Yeah. Uh, well, from my perspective as a Dio super fan, I mean, I have every album that he's ever performed on. Um, I love the documentary. Like, I thought it was very well made. I loved it too. Yeah. Just because I got the name wrong doesn't mean I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's well done. I've, I, I thought it was really good. It gave me an appreciation for something I didn't have before. You know, you know what we were just talking about about how bands like changed their sound and stuff in the nineties. You know, yeah. you know who didn't? Dio, Ronnie James Dio. He just kept. He, While well, they show it in the in the film, he just went to playing clubs. Yeah, he just kept grinding, and then there was a resurgence near the the later years, right? Yeah, like people came back around to it. It seems. Yeah. So tell me in your mind, where does that Heaven and Hell record sta- stack up um, compared to? And I'm not talking about like the Sabbath record, the the band Heaven and Hell. Where does that st- stack up for you? It's good. It's really good. Like there's yeah. a, there's some songs on there that are you know top ten Sabbath songs for sure. Really, I'd say so. Bible Black is is a, just an incredible song. Um, you know, nothing's going to beat the 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 original Heaven and Hell album, but it's mm. easily the best Black Sabbath album. I mean, it blows the one they did with Ozzy 13, I think it's called, uh, completely out of the water, in my opinion. Yeah. I did love the story, too, about how Ronnie had, like, his own microphone for the studio because no other microphones could handle his voice. <laughs> that was a good story. Yeah. <laughs> he would just be blowing all the microphones away. They're like, turn it down, and, like, it is down. <laughs> The guy could sing. Yeah. So it was cool. It's a definitely a recommend for um, for me anyways. I'll watch it again one day. It's that good. Mm-hmm. Right on, man. Let's get into this SWA record. History lesson, part one. 
So it's time to get swa. I've got a couple of nugs for you uh, from some, uh, I did some swa digging over the last week. So hopefully I'll blow your mind once or twice here, but let's go way back with swa because we start very early on. And I mean, I was thinking this week, this is like a, a through and through SST band, you know, and, and man, they just sound so SST on every record. We go way back though to episode 53 with your future if you have one. That's when uh, I think actually is that Ray Cooper on guitar on that one? I think so, hey. That's two guitarists. That's um Rich Ford and Ray Cooper. And Ray yeah, right, Rich Ford was on that. I also want to mention SST 66 where we had Chuck Dukowski on the program Annihilator episode. Got to mention how we had Chuck on then. SST 73, the Sex Doctor record, SST 93 the album 93 with Mr. Merrill Ward. We also had uh, the Arroyo 12-inch on episode 153 with Modi Frank as a guest. And here we are at SST 238 with the Winter LP. And I was loving it this week. I wonder if it's because I was watching the Dio documentary recently too. It totally got me ready for some swa. Yep, there's one more in there. That's 157, the Evolution 85 to 87. Oh, yeah, comp. right, right. I forgot about the comp on CD. Yeah, and we had Greg Cameron on as a guest for that one. Ah, uh, yes, good call. Actually, like you said, a solid mainstay of the label. Right? Like, you know, they're still going. How many bands that, you know, we first heard of back in 1985 are still kicking at this point? Not too many. Yeah, not really. And then we've got Phil on this record, which is cool. Like Phil, we've seen Phil before. He, I think he was an engineer on the Saccharin Trust Past Lives record, right? <laughs> really? Yeah. And uh, and then he's also, um, you talk a bit about this in the interview, about how he was in uh, the Jack Brewer band, the Harsh World LP, New Alliance 63. Phil is on that record and a bunch of other stuff too. Yeah. Obviously, everyone knows Swa is Chuck Dukowski's baby. Uh, around in various forms, mainly as an kind of an in-joke while he was still in Black Flag, started in earnest after he left the band in 1983, you know, after kind of reviving Worm a little bit. Uh, the core of the band is Chuck on bass, Greg Cameron on drums, and Merrill Ward on vocals. Um, we've gone over the formation of the band in, in those previous episodes that you talked about, so we're not going to get into that here. Like you mentioned, the guitar position in the band was a bit of a revolving door. Uh, the first album we had 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 two guitarists on it, uh, SST production manager Richard Ford and future descendant Ray Cooper. By the second, Ray was gone, and it was just uh, Rich, and by the third, Rich was gone as well. That's when they brought in X2 Damascus guitarist Sylvia Juncosa. Yeah. Who we've also had on the show for her uh, Nature album. After she left to pursue a solo career, they briefly brought in Ed Greger. Ed was a major figure in the PJD crew, playing in Out, Alter Drown, Shower of Smegma, Oblitosaurus, and Hedgehog. I know some or possibly all of those bands played, it, played with Swa um, many times. Josh Hayden told me, Chuck really liked the PJD bands. Eddie briefly joined Swa and played some gigs with them. I saw them once at the anti-club when he was in the band. Eddie told me one of the reasons he left was because of the constant weed smoke at practices. <laughs> um, so Ed left and in comes Phil Van Dyne, a.k.a. Philo. Before we throw it to Phil, I want to give you some uh, primordial ooze on Swa. Can I do that? Yeah. 
Okay, so, so I'm going to go way back. Again, I don't think we've had the opportunity to reference Jim Rulin's book on SWA before on this on this show. I don't think so. So I'm going to go way back, and I'm going to give you a bit of the foundation of SWA before we go into Phil. So in Jim's excellent book, Corporate Rock Sucks, The Rise and Fall of SST Records, he describes the formation of the SWA concept. Yep. The SWA concept, Okay. He's talking about uh, Harvey Kubernick, and uh, he says, Kubernick was a cultural force in L.A. and would prove to be an influential figure in SST circles for many years to come. And he talks about Kubernick's uh, label, Freeway Records, and he mentions this one, Voices of the Angels, Spoken Words, from 1982. It's an eclectic compendium of tracks recorded between 1975 and 1980, by a raft of cultural figures, including poets Charles Bukowski, Dennis Cooper, and Wanda Coleman. Musicians and producers Kim Fowley, Dave Alvin of the Blasters, and Ethan James, a former member of Blue Cheer and founder of Radio Tokyo Recording Studio, as well as a number of artists from the L.A. punk community, such as Chris D., Geza X., Fast Freddy, and Pleasant Gaiman. The double album also includes a piece by Charles Dukowski called Swa Manifesto, a work in progress, which provides a glimpse of the bass player's creativity beyond the scope of Black Flag. Yeah, there's a interview on YouTube and some amazing footage of Swa when Sylvia is in the band and this guy that's trying to interview them, like he's totally a square, he's not a punk rocker or anything. He's trying to interview them and they're referring to the band, like they keep saying, Thanks for coming. And Chuck will go, Swa is happy to be here. <laughs> so just you're, so just wait. Just wait, okay? Here, Jim continues on. What is Swa? What began as a mishmash of slogans morphed into something stranger during trips up the coast. On May 22nd, 1982, during the opening slot for Throbbing Gristle, Dukowski staged a Swa orientation rally. When Dukowski was joined on stage by members of the SWA elite, such as Pettibone, Spot, Boone, Ward, and Liberty, with their arms raised in salute, the scene resembled a satirical Nuremberg rally. And you can see in the book, there is a picture of like 30 people on stage holding their arm up. And you can see like Earl Liberty towering over everyone, right? Um, it's the SWA rally at Veterans Auditorium in Culver City, May 22nd, 1982, photo by Ed Culver, and Chuck is in the middle at the only mic, rocking out on an acoustic guitar. Yeah, It's just insane. Now, Voices of the Angels, this 2LP um, on Harvey Kubernick's label, um, track 18 on side 2, is credited to Charles Dukowski, Swa Manifesto, a work in progress produced by Spot. Shall I regale you with the Swa Manifesto, a work in progress? Yeah, I know we've mentioned, we've spieled it before, but... We've only spieled part of it. We okay. spieled the back, on the back cover of SST 53, Your Future If You Have One, there, and this is from 1985, right? Your yeah. Future If You Have One. This is Primordial Ooze Swa from 1982 from Chuck. And this is what he says on this record from 1982. And now some of it was retained for the back of your future if you have one. 
But check this out. Here we go. SWA is your future if you have one. SWA is not political. SWA is not religious. SWA is the order implicit. In the chaos surrounding us, there is an order implied. That order, the order implicit, is SWA, your future, if you have one. There are those who will shun SWA, will watch them destroy themselves. You are either SWA or non-SWA, but there is no middle ground. Yes. The problems facing the world today are a direct result of the violation of principles implied, no manifest in nature itself. The key to SWA is unified thought, that is, thought without contradiction. Those capable of unified thought are undeniably SWA. All others should let the command group think for them until, if and when, they are ready. SWA is good. Trust is important. SWA is, therefore it is. SWA is the only, the only panacea. With SWA, we can have it all. Beauty, love, hatred, destruction. We can tear down the world and it all works. Reminds you of something Biafra would have done on one of his spoken words, like shut up, be happy or whatever. Yeah. Way later, you know. Yeah. Now, in Jim's book, he also mentions how how Chuck did kind of like a later version of the SWA Manifesto. It's called Just the SWA Manifesto, Not a Work in Progress. It's twice as long on this double LP, also on Kubernetes label, English as a Second Language. Amazing Pettibone artwork on the front here. Um, that one is not that great. It's Chuck like kind of strumming along with a guitar. The ultimate SWA manifesto is the one in progress from the 1982 version, Voices of the Angels. And why is that? Because SWA is good. Trust is important. <laughs> SWA is because it is. No there, middle ground, man. There is no middle ground. Nice one. All right, let's, uh, let's throw it to Philo. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Phil Van Dyne. Philo, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, we're, we're really happy to have you. Um, been waiting for this for a while. So uh, let's start with you. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Torrance, California. Mm -hmm. And Torrance is, you know, I, I went to North High School. It's only like maybe three miles down the road from Miracosta High School that produced numerous f musicians and artists and great players just uh, an amazing school for outputting talent and then you just down the road only three miles is north torrance high and you know we we got chuck norris or you know there, there was <laughs> not much came out of there i mean bob height from canned heat but that was way back and uh so we were like culturally like a million miles away from the beach mm -hmm. where uh, all that stuff was happening, you know. And so I was just kind of a kook <laughs> when I first got into the music scene. And, and uh, you know, it, 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 it's very kind of a different thing, very conformist, working class place, Torrance. You know, and I was glad to get out of there when I finally realized where I was and <laughs> transported to San Pedro and been living there ever since. 
uh, who came out of Maricosta that we know? Oh, well, you've got like the Descendants and Black Flag and uh, you know Keith Morris and Joe Nolte and David Nolte and Frank Nevada and Bill Stevenson and like I say, uh, all those guys came out of and you know the slovenly guys, Tom Watson and Rob Holtzman. <laughs> I'm sure the list goes on. Yeah, probably a lot of people <laughs> I'm not even thinking of right now. You know. Yeah. When did you start playing guitar? I started when I was like, I want to say 16. Mm-hmm. I was probably fiddling around with my sister's acoustic and it had like four strings on it. I remember from my time I was about 14. And I, at 16, I, I had a job. I was working at the park and I saved up my money and I went out and bought a bass. Mm-hmm. And I remember I drove real far and I had a car and bought this bass and came home with it. My parents weren't too happy. <laughs> and I moved out to the garage with it. And, and then maybe about six months later, I got a, a guitar and started playing that. Mm-hmm. So like what year would this have been roughly? It's probably like 1981, 82. Mm-hmm. And what kind of music were, were you into at that point? Well, I, I I kind of, it's, you know, that conformist Torrance society, uh, you know, I, I, I grew up, um, exposed to the Beatles from my mom and I love the Beatles and then around 14, I, my sister who's older than me, she had a boyfriend who was older than her and he turned me on to like new wave stuff and I got into like Devo. Yeah. And I was, yeah, listening to a lot of that kind of thing. And then my friends in high school got into punk. And then we were like shifted over that way and we're kind of real conformist about it. You know, we listened to Circle Jerks and Black Flag and Fear and Dead Kennedys and um, which are all great bands. But um, I, I didn't really expand my music beyond that until I started meeting up with these musicians who you know, I found out we're very different, not conformist and listening to all kinds of stuff. Right. Yeah. And it's funny. I went from, there was some point there in, in probably my first year after high school, I was in junior college and I kind of went from being into that hardcore stuff into being into the Minutemen and the meat puppets. And then all of a sudden they were my favorite bands and, kind of never looked back you know it's it's weird how that works yeah well i think that's a pretty natural progression for a lot of a lot of people yeah (laughs) you're not ready for it not all of us anyways in our teenage years right right yeah who would have been like your your musical influences i guess like as a guitarist oh wow i think it's funny because i you know the guitarists that influence me and what i sound like are completely different so Mm -hmm. but uh if i had to list some i think you know d boone and uh guy i play with now joe biza they're probably my top two you know kirk kirkwood also the sst guy you know and if i went beyond that and it's it's really difficult because yeah there's just so many great players great music out there i i i like music 
probably more than guitar players. I'm not like a big guitar hero kind of guy. Right. Okay. Were you self-taught? Um, not really. I, I mostly, I guess, but when I first started, I, I did take some lessons from this guy who taught, you know, guitar out of a local music shop. And I went to him for about maybe six months and got a little bit of basics that basically I was using a lot of, um, on those early records. You know, I, I, I hadn't been playing very long when the winter record was recorded or mm-hmm. was your band nuclear, nuclear Bob. That's pre swa. Yeah. I had a few bands pre swa nuclear Bob was, I guess the one really right. Not quite. It was two before swa. Yeah, Nuclear Bob transitioned into another band without Tony and had Cecilia on bass and singing. And th- that was short-lived, but with Nick, and that was Offensive Suck Jew. Okay. Uh, who are these people you're talking about? Tell me about these bands, Nuclear Bob. Well, Nuclear Bob um, was Tony Lombardo from The Descendants hmm. and Nick Pasiglia from The Nip Drivers. Mm-hmm. And we had a singer for a while, and we, you know, named Steve, Steve Hickey. And he did a couple shows with us. But most of that band was like trying out singers and Tony not being satisfied with them. We tried out a dozen singers, tried out Ron Reyes. It was great. I could, and Tony, I don't know what Tony just like had issues with a lot of people. And, so yeah, it, I think it, it just we more by the time Steve came around, it was more like, well, we had you know how many people can we go through, and <laughs> so Tony kind of lessened up, but yeah, he was he was a hard guy to play with. Yeah, uh, no recordings or nothing that was released, anyways. Um, nothing released. No, no, we had you know I've got uh, someday I'm gonna upload a video that uh, we were playing at this party mm-hmm. without a singer. Mm-hmm. And it was just crazy, like, teenage party at this house with, you know, a million people. And the parents are gone away on vacation and cops come. And it, it was a good show. Classic. <laughs> yeah. Um, any of these songs that you were playing, like, did they end up on, like, the Tony All record or anything like that? Oh, yeah. I played a lot of those songs on the Tony All record. Oh. Um, it, yeah, it was uh, not... I'm trying to think. It wasn't very long after Nuclear Bob broke up that they made the Tony All record. I want to say like within a year. Oh, really? And he had another. He Tony like you know after I left and Nick left, he started. He had a band with Scott and um, this other guy that he had brought in to sing at one point, and a guy. John, who was, uh, or is his name James? I'm mixed up. Yeah, John or James, the guy from the Massacre guys who came out with uh, Carl and, and Stefan when they joined the Descendants, and their drummer played with us. Hmm. This is Boxer um, Rebellion you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, that was the Boxer Rebellion band. And then, so I played with that a little bit, and I... I, I 
got sick of Tony and you know, I'm, I'm like a young guy, 19, 20 years old. I don't, when you don't have a lot of patience in those days and it was probably, you know, Tony was hard to work with, but I probably wasn't easy either, you know? Right. Okay. How did the swath thing happen? Well, it's funny because early on I had tried played with Chuck and Greg when they were forming SWA and that was like I was had just been playing for a year or something at that point. You know, so I was really, you know, inexperienced. Mm. Was this and, like uh in the SST office when they were starting to do that? Yeah. Okay. It was at the um SST kind of halfway between Torrance and Miracosta. <laughs> right. Um, around, around the time they were also jamming with Ted Falcone, I believe. Right, and I did a jam with Ted Falcone. Oh, really? Yeah, it was two guitars, and wow. that was just like the weirdest experience of my life. I was <laughs> like, I didn't, I was young guy, inexperienced. Right. <laughs> not, totally not understanding improvisation or anything like that, and here I am playing with Chuck and Ted Falcone and they're wow. like going, wow. You know, and I, I just felt like lost right. and, um, yeah. Then they, I, you know, was a fan of SWA and they, I was friends with Ray and Greg and I, uh, watched them play a lot and was a fan. And mm-hmm. then saw him after Sylvia quit, I started playing with them again. I'm trying to think, I guess Nuclear Bob was happening during those earlier SWA years when I wasn't in the band. Hmm. Yeah. So you were kind of just hanging around SST just as a friend? Yeah, yeah. And um, then I think by the time Sylvia was in the band, they didn't have that location anymore, and and they didn't have a place to practice, and they were practicing at a pay-to- practice place mm. by the hour or something and i practiced with him a couple times there and then i'm like hey you can just come to my place and i was like thinking to myself oh if i could get him into my garage they'll never get rid of me you know <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of worked it was true so this is your parents garage still yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> so the your parents had a problem with you bringing a bass home i can't imagine you know bringing swa home <laughs> oh i yeah i tell you well my dad had passed away by then but mm, i'm sorry um nuclear bob mostly nick and myself and a tiny bit of help from tony built a practice pad in there that was super heavy duty mm-hmm. um layer upon layer of carpet and wood and carpet and it, it was the walls were like eight inches thick we had learned from bill and and black flag and and how they did places and and bill had done his place up in uh, lomita and he told me where to to go to find all the good carpet scraps (laughs) (laughs) and i had i was working at the time and i borrowed the work stake bed truck and me and nick would go around you know at 10 o'clock at night and go to the back of these dumpsters and find where the good carpets were, you know, right. (laughs) (laughs) You could call it good. It was all disgusting and gross, but they were, you know, there was different layers of disgusting and gross. And then if you went to the places that were fixing up places in PV or, or, you know, richer places, they were pulling out some newer carpets some of the times. Right. Right. Okay. Um, so the bulk of the songs, 
I think, for all the SWA albums, but this one for sure, written by Chuck and Merrill. Do you know, like, would Chuck just bring in a bass line? Or, you know, how did it typically work? Did he have com- the he, songs kind of complete? He, I think he kind of did. You know, they, they were complete instrumental songs. And sometimes um, there would be an idea, you know, and, and maybe a working title or just an idea. And then Merrill would take it and, and write some great lyrics. You know, mm-hmm. he, he was he was really amazing at how he could improvise lyrics yeah and he would start out like improvising a song and then figure out his ideas from his improvisations and then write it down and make a a song out of it do you remember your first show with the band yeah it was well it's funny because i the first show that i really remember didn't happen and I just started playing with the band. We had about maybe eight songs that were all from winter down. And there was going to be this giant SST festival. Oh, yep. <laughs> and it was at this park somewhere way out. And it was advertised on, on the radio. And a lot of big bands were playing. And and it was going to be our debut with me and 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 Chuck had worked it, so I think we had like two sets. We were going to play those eight songs twice, <laughs> um, like a different, you know, quite a bit of time from each other. And, right. And, right. And I was, and then the cops shut it down before it happened, and there was like thousands of people like turning around at this park, you know, being turned away. I think, and Greg was one of them. He he didn't know it was canceled and was driving from san diego or somewhere i can't remember and and drove straight to the thing just to be completely disappointed (laughs) this was the yeah i I believe the story was there was no permit taken out or something like that yeah they pulled something they 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 got scared though they didn't want all those punkers (laughs) yeah the permit thing was just bullshit yeah it, it, it there was uh yeah it was too bad and then i so i think after that my first shows were at the Palomino and Raji's and a place in Orange County. I can't remember the name. And there was like all a three-day weekend. That was like, whoa, kind of a pretty big introduction to playing that um, stuff for sure. With Chuck writing on bass, like his bass lines are pretty busy sometimes. Did you? Was it difficult for you to, you know, create something to to play along with the bass or to find your, find your own parts. Yeah, definitely. I, I, you know, I was young and, and I came from that thought process of just, you know, the bass and the guitar should just be playing the same thing, you know, whatever. And and here I, you know, realized after watching SWA for three years that no, that's not what they do. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so I knew (laughs) when I, started playing with them permanently i knew what they wanted or i knew what chuck wanted but i didn't know really how to do it and so but i just kind of you know went for it and it, it was really good to not only learn how to play to chuck's lines but just a experience in music that you know you're not going to replicate because there's no, nobody like chuck and yeah 
yeah, the, his song Modern Man just popped into my mind for some reason. Well, not for some reason. I know why, because that's, you can hear it in that song, right? Like that bass line that he wrote and, and Greg Ginn basically just doubles it. Right. You know what right. I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's Chuck is, you know, a, a musical genius, a, a personal genius. I, I really fortunate to have played with him and been friends with him all these years. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the recording of this album, it looks like some of the, like the beds and some of the guitar was recorded at studio USA by Michael Boshears and much of the bass and vocals at AMS studio by Bob Brown and Mike Sessa. What can you tell me about, about all of that? Well, we started out at the, uh, first studio you mentioned in Hollywood and we weren't happy with how it was going. So we moved over to this place in Orange County to finish it. It, it was all the basic tracks were done in a couple of days at the uh, Studio USA by uh, Boshears. Mm -hmm. And then basically all the overdubbing was done at the Orange County place with Mike Sessa. Okay, was this your first time in a studio? Yeah, uh, no. Um, second, well, th I would actually say even the third time in the studio. I did a a demo with Cecilia, and I, I'm, uh, I played on Cecilia's record for one song a couple of years prior. Hmm. But yeah, it was my first uh, full record for sure. Some of these songs are almost like prog rock songs. There's so much going on in them. Were they difficult to play? Yeah. I Like I say, it was, I mean, I had come from playing a lot of Tony songs, so I, I was used to complicated, but it was a different kind of complicated. And yeah, they were definitely hard to play. And we practiced a lot, though. Yeah, well, you would have to. <laughs> What do you like to to be able to play these songs? What do you think of this this idea that you know you hear people say Swa was like the worst band on SST and this you know crap like that? What what do you think when you hear that? Obviously, it's not well. True. It, it's funny because um, it was always I felt like you know you either loved us or hated us, you know, and, and we we brought out strong emotions one way or the other, you know. And, uh, that was okay. You know, I, I, I the people that are haters are going to hate, you yeah. know, I, yeah, I look back on it very fondly. Yeah. Well, I, but you did have fans. I, I, mean, oh, I yeah. assume like when you would play local shows, people would come out. Yeah, we would, we would have a lot of fans and, and we got to play with a lot of cool bands because Chuck was booking out-of-town bands all the time and and so you know Soundgarden's in town we're playing with Soundgarden no right. means no's in town we're playing with no means no um so it it was a good experience and and we had this core set of fans that would come out and crowd around the stage and then we'd start and we'd be so loud they'd have to back up about five or ten feet <laughs> <laughs> and I I don't think Merrill gets his due as as a vocalist for sure like he's a really can carry a tune but what yeah. about what about Merrill as a frontman as well 
Oh, and that was probably part of the love or hate thing because he was so flamboyant and crazy. He would he was a you know amazing frontman, and and like you say, not only was he a great frontman, but he could sing. You know, he had pipes. Yep. And um, yeah, but I remember we got banned from Gazaris. He like climbed up onto the scaffolding or something. He was <laughs> up on the ceiling and he was doing this rant about the owner and and Gazari, Bill Gazari, like would have these commercials on at the time about how you know only good looking guys and girls are coming on my stage. Right. <laughs> He's like this, you know, the Godfather type of guy, and then then. Meryl goes up there and does this whole imitation of him and <laughs> you're banned. You're not coming back. <laughs> but yeah, Meryl was great. You know, you walk into the women's restroom with the microphone and sing to somebody in there. It just, and yeah, so a lot of people like, you know, they, they got turned off by that, I think, but you know, a lot of people just loved it. And I think, you know, that that was part of the love hate thing with Swa, you know, Plus, I mean, like, Merrill was a bit of a rocker. Like, he, you know, you see him from that era. He's got the long hair, vest on, like a, I've seen pictures of him with, like, a, you know, a, a leopard skin vest with no shirt on underneath. And he looks like a rock star. Yeah. And it's yeah. not tongue in cheek, I don't think, either. <laughs> He's, you know, he took the part seriously. He, yeah. he, he <laughs> like, you know, he was amazing front man. You think about it. Yeah. Okay. So this record, you get a songwriting credit on one of the songs, Mass Confusion. Now, was were you in a band at some point called Mass Confusion? So Mass Confusion was my first band that was with some high school friends before Nuclear Bob. I had this song. I think I wrote it around the Nuclear Bob era and just um, music, no words. And... Merrill took the idea, oh, you had this cool old band, Mass Confusion, and here's your cool song, and went with it, and that was his idea to take, and and he wrote the song about Mass Confusion. <laughs> the intro to the Mass Confusion, that's an interesting story, too, because I was in the studio, and, and I was doing some feedback parts for another song that um, didn't make the record ended up making the next record with Jack Brewer singing on it. Mm -hmm. And so I had been doing all this feedback stuff and then Chuck had actually taught me how to do this. And so I'm making all these feedback noises and we recorded a bunch of extra of it. And then we thought, um, and then we're in the mastering with uh, Vetus from the last, he's mastering the, the record. Right. And, he comes up with the idea to connect that to the mass confusion. Uh And so all that was like a, so that whole like dive bombing guitar before mass confusion starts was just like this feedback noise I was making. And we, he did some wizardry with the mastering and panned it and stuff. And then it pops right into mass confusion and it loses a little something on the CD, but the, the vinyl is real cool. It just goes straight in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of the CD version, the three bonus tracks, Bad Acid, Desire, and I Want to Know, those all sound like studio jams to me. Yeah, those were all, there's no overdubs on any of those. They were all, you know, 
takes at um, the first studio. Uh, yeah, the, that kind of stuff you don't really overdub. Yeah. <laughs> Merrill included? No, Merrill, I think, overdub. Although he did sing on the rough, too. So it's hard to say. I can't. I don't. I, I, I'm imagining he overdubbed, but I don't know. Yeah. I hear a bit of a Greg Ginn influence on some of your guitar playing. That may just be, you know, that these are Chuck songs and, you know, the guitar playing with Chuck, but... Well, I think Greg was definitely an influence on my playing, and, and he's the great guitar player. I probably was trying to sound like him, thinking, you know, this is what will fit this music. But at the same time, you know, I really don't... I've heard that a few times from people like, Oh, it sounds like Greg Ginn or I've read that. And I, to me, it doesn't, you know, I was like, really? I, he, he does stuff. I, I, I don't even know what he's doing. You know? Yeah. Well, <laughs> some of it might just be tone, I think. Right. Maybe. Right. And I, I definitely, especially on this record, I, I had the same equipment. Hmm. I, I used a, uh, Roland preamp on this record. Were you playing, uh, your BC rich at this point? Yeah. And so, yeah, it was a humbucker and a, and a Roland preamp. And that's a very distinctive tone that he was using at that time. And we were into analog, you know, we didn't want to deal with tubes and, um, it seemed like the way to go. And so I had this big power amp. We were like so loud. I had, (laughs) I had a, probably a 500 watt power amp and this preamp and me and Chuck had these dual stacks where I had like a two fifteens and a four twelve and Chuck had two eighteens and a four twelve and they, they looked matching and we'd have them side by and it was just like really heavy and a lot <laughs> of stuff to carry around and I didn't I hated having to move all that stuff right, you know, on stage before you played because you know you get all tightened up with your muscles from lifting this heavy stuff. <laughs> and then you'd have to go up there and play and I was like, oh <laughs> rock star singer and a you know uh, a stadium backline <laughs> yeah yeah well Merrill was never around when we were moving the equipment right <laughs> right why would the singer be around for that right right yeah um okay well speaking of these improvised tracks was that something that you did live as well did you yeah did you improvise? Yeah, we, we probably opened a whole lot of um live shows with bad acid oh yeah, and we would, you know, it's not always be as long as it is on the record, but it, you know, ten minutes. And good, way like a, a good way to get a good way to get the mix up. up. And, yeah, get their things going, <laughs> yeah. and you know, weed out the crowd who's going to survive. You know, right? <laughs> yeah, separate the swa from the non-swa. Exactly. Yeah, you know? <laughs> but, yeah. It, that was a fun opener, and um, yeah, then we would go probably through the set and we most of the later in swad i learned more of the backlog and we were doing some of the older songs but the first probably year or so i was in the band it was mostly just the winter stuff mm-hmm. when we first started talking today you were you mentioned that you listened to this record any other thoughts that crossed your mind as you as you heard it yeah, I'd, well, I think that, you know, you listen to it and you realize that Chuck is like this riff genius who could just write 
so many great songs. It's just amazing how much talent that one guy can have. You know, he, he just, uh, I can't say enough about the musical genius of Chuck, you know, and I played with him in three bands. It, it's just been great. Yeah. So he, he's, you know, a lot of these songs are, are those Chuck licks. Yeah, I, I like them all. <laughs> yeah, it, um, it's a great, I think it's... I know, think uh, Monster best. was an interesting one that, that came before. It was an earlier song that he wrote himself mm-hmm. um, without Merrill. Although I'm sure Merrill probably has some improvised lyrics in there of his own, but that was a, a Black Flag song, and it never got recorded with Black Flag, and then it later went on. He recorded it, Chuck did, with... Uh, he did a new version of it, and it sounded great. I'm trying to think of who it was with. Hmm. Was it with the the United Gang members, maybe? No, I'm thinking it might have been Blackface. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now that you mention it, I think I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and so I, he did that version. I was like, whoa, you know. It, it, it's a complicated um, rhythm and probably something I – maybe even greg but we didn't fully understand i think at the time Mm -hmm. but it i it's a neat song and it has a lot of improvisation too merrill has a a couple solo uh rights on here too wasting my time and the man upstairs i think like merrill played a little guitar i think i remember him telling us um not i maybe he did and didn't tell me but i don't think so yeah I think all those guitars are mine. But well, yeah, I, ju- Merrill's I just mean, songs are, I, I, are, I just meant as far as writing. Oh yeah, Merrill yeah. was a uh, yeah. He he was actually a really good guitar player. He he was could do like anything really. You know, he he could folk and do an imitation of Bob Dylan and or you know do an imitation of a blues guy or he, he just he was a very talented fellow. He he was like an actor too mm-hmm. and um, yeah, just. Uh, yeah, real good at that. Yeah, but his songs are—you know—you could definitely tell the difference between oh, yeah. a Merrill song and a Chuck song. Yeah, <laughs> Merrills are much more poppy, more accessible, like that. And you know, he, Merrill writes hits. Yeah, oh, he wrote Arroyo. <laughs> right. Yep. You know. Yeah. But yeah, I, I wasted my time, and, and the man upstairs are are. are kind of all in that same kind of genre and you can imagine like if Merrill wrote his own album what it what it might be and mm-hmm. it's pretty neat yeah what can you tell me about the cover of this record <laughs> so the cover of this record is out in the salt beds ah. in like near death valley and you know it was made to look like snow but it's you know it was like a hundred and over a hundred degrees when wow. we <laughs> took that picture and the model, Denora, was my girlfriend at the time. Mm-hmm. And Denora and I and Chuck and Naomi Peterson, photographer, mm-hmm. drove Chuck's van out to the desert to take this picture. And Chuck wanted it, you know, in the hottest time of the year to 
for the full effect of winter, you know, right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, his van didn't have any air conditioning or anything. And we just like melted going in it's a good four hour drive, you know? Right. And, and we walked out into the salt beds and, and, um, got that shot and, and it's got, a kind of a fish angle thing on it to make it look even stranger. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are like, is that snow? Is that, but it's salt. Hmm. Um, and yeah, it's, it was a hundred over a hundred degrees <laughs> when we took the picture. And they have like, they race land speed record car cars out there. They have long hmm. 50 yard mile stretches of that salt bed and they race on it and go 500 miles an hour. And so, uh, did you tour this record at all? Um, not, uh, official tours. We did go to the East coast. Um, and I played like some cool shows. I put, uh, CBGBs and the nine thirty club and Maxwell's and the rat. And, wow. And we did a, just a lot of West coast runs, San Francisco and Arizona. And, but I, I never went on like an official long tour at that point. Both, Chuck and I were doing business, you know, right. and didn't really have the ability to leave for long periods of time. Yeah. I, one of the things I kind of regret not having done any big long tour with anybody. Uh, any standout shows from, from any of that, you know, the touring that you did do? I would say the CBGB show was like, very standout and we go there and and, and I, I can't remember who the bands were we were booked with but they seemed like they were all like kind of rem or something and and we're like thinking are we gonna like work here and and we're it, we're kind of nervous about it you know and that was like i think that was our first show out on the east coast we just gotten there mm -hmm. and merrill did the performance of a lifetime and he's dancing on the tables and the whole place is going nuts. And the, the sound man said, well, that's the best rock show since 77 or whatever. And, um, yeah, that was a very standout show. Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember playing with the blast up in Santa Cruz. Oh, wow. To a big crowd, um, in a college place. Um, somewhere at UC Santa Cruz, I think, and playing to thousands of people. And that was fun, too. Uh, Merrill left the band at some point after winter, between winter and volume. Do you know, like, was was there ever any talk about whether or not you would move forward without Merrill? Or was it understood that you, you were going to? Yeah, we, we, you know, we tried to go forward without Merrill. Chuck had more music and... and so we recorded that album and then we started looking for singers and we never found anybody that could replace Merrill. <laughs> and yeah, so it kind of just died out. And then I think Greg moved on and then, uh, yeah, it just kind of over at that point. Speaking of which, I seem to recall there was a, a thing where Mark Lanigan from Screaming Trees talked about being asked to join SWAT. Do you know anything about that? No, but 
I definitely remember playing with the Screaming Trees and hanging out with Mark Lanigan. Um, they played with us in Hollywood somewhere, probably the Anti Club. And uh, yeah, they were really nice guys. I was sad to hear of their losses recently. Yeah. Anybody we know try out to replace Merrill? Um, no, I don't think so. No. We were uh, Chuck was big on like recruiting fans mm. and he we tried out a couple of fans we couldn't find anybody that was good and also willing you know with, with enough time on their hands it was hard to replace Merrill so the next record you know has some of the tracks or has a track with Merrill that didn't make it on this record and you know the this record initially was going to be a double record. Oh, wow. You know, we had enough material for a double record, but it took a long time to finish. Merrill took a long time in the studio. We spent a lot of money, and the, the CDs were coming on board by then, so it made more sense to just do the extended CD. Right, right. I know that you technically replaced Sylvia Giancosa in SWA, but before her, Richard Ford was the guitar player, and then you, I believe, went on to replace Richard in the Jack Brewer band. <laughs> right. I just kind of follow Richie around. You know? <laughs> we used to joke about that. Yeah. yeah uh, and later, there was a point in the Jack Brewer band in the early 2000s that uh, Richie and I were playing together oh. in, in the jack burr band and i've done some business stuff with richie we've had a good business together at one point so yeah we we have a personal connection beyond the me following his <laughs> guitar playing <laughs> right uh what was like the status of the jack brewer band circa harsh world Were, was it like a really active band were you doing any touring um no we it was sort of similar to SWA where we were doing some little weekend trips. We went to San Francisco and like that, but we, we mostly just played in LA without ambitions of touring really right. working. Yeah. It's yeah. It's that Torrance mindset, you know, yeah. got to work. The music is a part time hobby. Right. <laughs> You've been spoiled with front men, though. Going from Merrill Ward to, to Jack Brewer is, is quite something. I've been spoiled with everybody it, it, my whole life. It's just weird. You know, I went from Chuck to Bob Fitzer, you know. Right. I, <laughs> well, let's talk about some of those other projects. So you mentioned you've played with Chuck a few times post-swap. Fish Camp, tell me about how that got started and kind of what the the arc of that band was. Well, Fish Camp started like, with my own riffs and so I had like an idea to like, Oh, I'm going to start a band here. And so I got my friends, Dave and Chuck and, and Chuck was, he had gone through a, a issue with his arm. I can't remember exactly what it was, but he had some kind of damage for a little while and it took him a little bit to recover. And when he finally recovered, he was into, you know, working out the bass. Mm -hmm. And and he, uh, so he played my songs and played with me. And 
um, came up with all these amazing bass licks to my songs and, and we made a recording and played around and that was fun. And then I had a, both Dave and I and Chuck had kids and it kind of took a damper for a while. And then I, when my daughter got a little older, I started playing again. Any chance we'll ever see those recordings, like up on Bandcamp or anything like that? Um, yeah, actually, I, I should do that because they're just hanging around. I did have them on the internet for a while. Mm-hmm. There was a little fish camp website, mm-hmm. and uh, some of them were like just you know free download MP3s. Right. But yeah, I, I should do that. It's a lot of stuff I should do. <laughs> <laughs> What's the status of Worm? Yeah, in like 2019, Chuck um, asked if I wanted to participate in a worm reunion, um, replaced Ed Danke, rest in peace. And it sounded like a fun. And, and he had uh, just gotten the double worm album released through um, Org. Yep. And wanted it, was excited to promote it. And so we practiced, and and then we recorded a a single, and we played a couple shows, and then the pandemic hit, and we had a bunch of stuff lined up, and it all got canceled. Mm. And uh, yeah, we didn't come back. No, no talk of picking up where you left off. Yeah, I, you know, it was it wasn't that easy for people um, before the pandemic. Chuck lives in Venice and I live in San Pedro and Lou lives in Norwalk. And so we did, they were dealing with like our drives to practice and right. it, it, it was tough. And, and then with the pandemic hit and, and kind of tampered on that, it's yeah, I, I, there hasn't really been talk about coming back, but it was fun while it lasted. Um, Lawndale. Yeah playing in Lawndale now um been doing that since 2016 or 17 somewhere around then and started playing bass again and it's the first time I've uh really played bass in a band and so that's been a lot of fun and then Steve Housden recently quit there was talk of oh we should get a bass player and have me play guitar but i was like wow i really like playing the bass and i never got to do that before and so i said well let's get joe biza (laughs) because i just practiced with him the week before with the jack brewer band or something and i was like oh yeah he would be really good and so joe wanted to do it and so now we've got joe in there and it sounds really cool and uh we're going to be playing uh, a show in about a month at the Sardine, where I was at last night, checking out the Alley Cats with Dondo, Dez's new band. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so Dondo, you know, Redondo Beach and Lawndale, two city bands getting together in San Pedro. It's, right. Should be fun. And <laughs> Lawndale recorded a, a EP, I guess you would call it, um, eight songs that we started before the pandemic and didn't finish until after. Um, that, that's out there on all the digital formats. We're working on getting a physical format still, but Mm -hmm. moving slow, you know? Yep. 
any other uh, musical activities that you're currently working on or play, anybody you're playing with? Um, just the Jack Brewer band. We occasionally get together for um, shows. We recently, just a few weeks ago, played a benefit show for Greg Hurley, George right. Hurley's brother who passed away. Yeah. We raised a good deal of money for his kids, and that was good. That's great. And, but yeah, it, it Jack Brewer Band is more of a special occasion type of band. And Lawndale, we try to be pretty regular. I was doing the last two for 10 years, but that kind of took a damper too with the pandemic. Right. You're, you're like... Uh the ultimate SST hired gun. I feel like (laughs) (laughs) I felt, yeah, in the last 10 years or so that that's probably been the case, you know, but it's, you know, not who was first. It's those who will last. (laughs) Must feel a little surreal sometimes. I mean, you're a little bit younger than, than most of these guys. So, you know, kind of, I'm sure there was a point where you were in the audience and, watching some of these guys and stuff. Oh yeah. Mondale, it was so funny because I, I just knew the records so well. It was like really easy to learn them. Um, the last I knew the songs, but it, they were not easy to learn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, you know, like I say, I've been really fortunate to have played with so many great players. I mean, I can't tell you, you know, all, you were talking about going from Merrill to Jack Brewer and, but yeah, and the bass and the drums too. I, I played with a lot of, a lot of great guys and very fortunate, yeah. I think. Right on. Phil, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Ah, oh, so cool to have Phil on. I mean, it's amazing how he's really kept up a lot of those SST connections and gigs, right? Like people obviously uh, like Phil and like to play with him. And uh, I sure hope he can make it to our Mojack windup. Yeah. Uh, I like when he's talking about this, his pre Tony all band nuclear Bob. I know. And boxer rebellion. If I understood it right, Jamie Schumann, uh, who was the lead singer of Massacre Guys, also came out with Carl and was in an early version of Boxer Rebellion. I don't know if that's well known. Yeah, I didn't remember hearing that, but that's what I understood as well, too. It wasn't just Carl and Stefan who came out. Yeah, but while well, Stefan was in like New York or something like that, he, Pro- it was practicing. just Carl that came out, I think. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, Stefan, wasn't he in New York like practicing classical guitar or something? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. Okay, I got you. Uh, Boxer Rebellion, by the way, for people who don't know, was a Tony Lombardo project that ended up with Scott Reynolds as vocalist, and they did a short tour opening for The Descendants, actually. Yeah, I wish they had something recorded. Yeah. He also uh, mentions Pre-Swa playing on an album by Cecilia, speaking of Descendants. That would be uh, the album Cecilia Plus, like just with a plus sign, and the album's called The Other Side of This Side, 1986, Altslen Records, which looks like it was likely her label. Uh, her full name is Irma Cecilia Laura, Lorea, and she was a brief and early singer for Descendants pre-Milo. Yep. I, I've never seen or heard this album before digging around a bit once hearing Phil mention it. You can hear a bit of it on YouTube. Uh, the tracks that are up there sound almost like something Lydia Lunch would do, like some piano bass, some with a 
with a band and it's kind of spoken word poetry over top. Hmm. She was also vocalist in goth rock band Angel of the Odd, who had one full length album also on that same label, Atslan, uh, in 1989 called Hiding from Fears, which is really great. I think we've actually talked about that band before, possibly, but not sure if we made the connection or not that it, the singer was this Cecilia Lorea who was briefly in The Descendants. Yeah. That'd be a very different sounding Descendants with her singing. Yeah. She unfortunately passed away in 2008. Uh, Swa with No Means No, Ryan. I, I heard that reference. <laughs> yeah. That would be a great show, right? Yeah. Um, the Fish Camp Band, I, I know I've talked about them before. This was one of the bands that sprang up around the Liquid Kitty venue, which opened in 1996 and closed in 2016. So pretty awesome 20-year run. The owner uh, was Lawndale drummer Dave Childs, uh, owned the venue Liqu- Liquid Kitty, who we also had on a, as a guest back on episode 125 for the Sasquatch Rock album. And I know we talked about Liquid, Liquid Kitty when... In the interview, it's crazy how many SST alum reformed, played shows, or formed new bands that you know, kind of around that venue and mm. their and their punk rock barbecue showcases. Watt, Sacron Trust, Nip Drivers, Synthort Thirty Four Reunion, Urinals, Lawndale, Human Hands, Chuck Dukowski Sextet, The Spotnator, Fatso Jetson, Rad Waste, Blood on the Saddle, Carnage Asada, Atomic Sherpas. The Extras, which Phil also played in, uh, Trotsky Icepick, Sylvia Juncosa, on and on. And then uh, Dave Childs, Chuck Dukowski, and Philo formed Fish Camp. Um, one officially released song on a comp Craig Abera put out on his cassette label, SAD, uh, the Triskaidekaphobia San Pedro comp. You can hear it on the Water Under the Bridge Bandcamp. Looks like it's still available on CD on the Water Under the Bridge website. And while you're there, you can get the cassette of the extras. The -hmm. album's called Waiting For You, which is a project Phil had with Jack Brewer circa 2012 that we didn't, I don't think, really get into in the interview. But that's cool. Uh, It would be great to see the Fish Camp album get an official release someday. Agreed. Yeah, that's a good comp to Triska Decophobia. Yeah. Yeah, it's just great to hear Phil talk about his time in SWA in particular though I mean it's it's a it's a weird band and it's just a Chuck band through and through right um, but I think SWA really doesn't get their due and you did touch on that a bit with Phil so I went back as well and I, I pulled up this spiel by Darren Cifarelli it's on that Menthol Mountains blog and it's that uh, spiel called In Defense of SWA. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that one. I do. Yeah. yeah. So I went back and I was rereading that. And I think Darren makes a really good point about how SWA was like postmodern rock ahead of its time, kind of. Yep. Postmodern LA rock in particular, he mentions. Check out a couple of these spiels from Darren. SWA is postmodern, it decenters the limited universe of LA music and challenges what had become a stale formulaic approach to music. Very true. SWA exploits genre music as Echo and Gibson exploit detective novels and sci-fi pulp fiction by transforming the genre through appropriation of heavy metal poses, SST riffs, loud male dominated testosterone laden driving force music, without belief in any of the false pretensions associated with it. 
but with the realization that a mutated heavy metal guitar solo complements free bass style arrhythmic soloing reconfigured the best elements of jazz metal rock sst are spliced together in swa disjointed and non-linear creating a new paradigm and straining to escape the meta-narrative prison very true and then he also does it's, a quick it, it sounds like you're reading from the swa manifesto still <laughs> I have a, well, listen, I had to listen to that record a lot to write it down. So I've got, I've got kind of, uh, Chuck's, uh, speaking tattooed on my brain, I suppose here, but, but speaking of Chuck, um, Darren also gets into Chuck's playing, which of course is just astounding on this record, just like on all the other SWA records, but an interesting comparison of Chuck, you know, pre and post SWA. Let's check this out. Dukowski deserves recognition as a revolutionary bass player, not for his playing in Black Flag, which was unremarkable, but for the style he developed and perfected after leaving Black Flag and playing in other configurations, which primarily was swa and some impromptu jam sessions. His solos and song structures still blow me away today. No one played like him. Yeah. Very true. Yep. And then I've got a spiel on Winter here from uh, the Trouser Press, which I, I thought was pretty good. Uh, I, I wonder if I forgot about the Evolution comp because of this part here. He's kind of uh, criticizing Evolution here. Following Evolution, an unnecessary 18-song, 70-minute CD condensation of the first three albums, Swa found itself a new guitar player, Junkoza had begun her solo career in earnest and regained its focus on the heavy-duty winter. A lot of the demi-metal fire, new Axeman Phil is from the Black Sabbath, bore a hole in your skull school, yes. is, is lost in the cloth-eared production, but Ward gets the, the tritely bombastic lyrics across with more clarity than they deserve. Ooh. That's maybe a bit of a backhanded compliment. I don't know. I have some stuff to say about all of that. So you want to get into this record? I'm dying to get into it. Let's do it. History lesson, part two. Don't die just yet, Brant, because I've got a Spaceman spiel for you. Oh, First Harvest. Yeah, man. Yeah. 1989's First Harvest from the SST catalog on Swa Winter. Here we go. The forecast is fantastic. The discordant elements of winter gel and mighty swaflakes flakes descend from the heavens to rock supreme. Guitarist Phil Van Dyne joins Greg, Chuck, and Merrill on Swa's fourth. Mass confusion and monster will melt glaciers. With nine more scorchers on LP, cassette and CD include the 15-minute Bad Acid plus two more. SST 238, LP and cassette, $7.50, CD, 13 bucks. Yeah. Awesome. So this came out in March 89, like you said, on CD, LP, and cassette. As Phil mentions, at, at one point there was discussion of it possibly, possibly being a double album. That would have been epic. Yeah. In classic SST fashion, the LP has 12 tracks, the cassette has 14, it does not have Bad Acid on it, and the CD has 15 tracks. As we discussed in the interview, it was recorded in two different studios, 
drums on all tracks, uh, along with some of the bass and some guitar at Studio USA by Michael Boshears. We've seen Michael Boshears before. Uh, he did the second October Faction album, the two Gone records that we've seen so far, Tom Tricoli's Dog, Minute Flag, the first Swa record. He mixed In My Head, probably some other stuff too. All of the vocals and the rest of the bass were all done at AMS Studios, Advanced Media Systems in Orange County. The studio was actually owned by the label Dr. Dream Records, and a lot of their artists recorded there. Uh, engineers at those sessions were Bob Brown and Mike Sessa, uh, who were both house engineers at AMS. Mike is also a drummer. He played in a bunch of bands, including most recently the Streetwalk and Cheetahs on their awesome 2021 album, One More Drink, along with, of course, Frank Meyer, the band leader. It's his band, uh, but bassist Bruce Duff and guest keyboardist Paul Rossler, who also engineered that record. Oh, man, we haven't mentioned Bruce for a while. Yeah. So we've got, um, and I'm going to go off the CD version here because it's got the bonus tracks. That's what I listen to. So uh, the first track is Winter, written by Chuck and Merrill. Most of these songs were, most of the SWA songs are written by, by Chuck and Merrill. The intro of this song just made me think of Bad Brains every time. Because it just bursts right in, hey? Yeah. Um, the first half of this song is pretty straightforward, but then out of nowhere it shifts into this insane Voivodian thing with these weird discordant chords. It's the exact thing I love about Swa. You just don't, you, you have no idea where the songs are going. Um, they made a video for this song, shot at John, John Scarpati's studio in downtown LA by Modi Frank. Edited by David Jove of New Wave Theatre. Motivational, promo what is it again? What's Modi's company? Yeah, motivational, yeah. Motivational, yeah. nice. Interesting video. It's mainly close-ups of Merrill in front of a green screen. Uh, with like these clips of nuclear destruction and war and stuff like that. Um, it kind of drives home the lyrical theme of the song, I guess, like to avoid a nuclear winter, maybe. Mm -hmm. Meryl looks like a total rock star. I think it's maybe supposed to be winter in the studio. Like the rest of the band <laughs> look like they're up in Canada getting ready to go shovel some snow. <laughs> kind of like today in Canada. Yeah. Merrill's wearing some black gloves and a turtleneck and he and this wicked dangly earring. Uh, definitely a weird arrangement, that track. Yeah. It's, it's very Chuck. Yep, one of the standout tracks for me, uh, as is the next one, Goddess, written by Chuck and Merrill. One of the two tracks on this release that we've heard just about a year ago, actually, on episode 213, the program Annihilator 2 comp. Mm, right. Hard not to think of Black Flag with like the count in on, in on the hi-hat, Chuck's extended bass intro, uh, Greg's drumming, like, you know, it sounds like uh, Can't Decide or something like that, you know, at the beginning. Um, totally. Greg also takes a little drum solo in this one. Pretty raunchy tone from Philo, you know, solid state amps, and he played a BC Rich Mockingbird, which has a pretty crunchy sound. My favorite part of this is after the drum solo when Meryl just howls high upon her pedestal, my angel from above. Just love it. <laughs> yeah, it really reminds me too when I listen to this record about, I mean, I get the, the Black Flag reference. I actually had another one later on too. Um, but Greg's drumming. 
he totally comes like it's just amazing drumming but straight from the bill stevenson school of drumming oh yeah he's talked about that many times yeah yeah yeah. but i mean like on par it's it's killer man well i you know again i don't really see as see saying you know it sounds like black flag as a as a no criticism i mean chuck was a big part of black flag you know yeah and guess what like at this point there's no more flag yeah. right who else is going to carry the torch it just sounds eminently sst this record yeah uh the next one is conquest written by chuck and merrill i love this song Mer- merrill's lyrics are so killer aimed like death from above armed with a weapon of love when he's up in his like his upper register on the chorus I've said it before, Merrill Merrill Ward is one of the best vocalists in the entire SST catalog, in my opinion. Mm. Yeah, he can sing, man. He can sing. This song had some great doubled vocals in it, too. When you listen to it on headphones, you could really pick it out. I thought it was great. Yeah. Yeah, it's a highlight for me, for sure. King of the Pit, written by Chuck and Merrill. This is an interesting song. It's almost like Swa does Ramones. It's like a pop song, almost. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can really tell the guitars in this track too. Again, listening on headphones, how they're panned left and right on this track. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah, it works. Uh, The next one is intro, just the 40 second feedback piece. Phil talked about that, you know, that it's an uncredited Vetus Matare spliced, spliced this in when he was mastering the album. I I believe he said this is uh, part of a bigger piece that was subsequently used on the next uh, and final SWA record, 1991's volume. So we'll have to try to remember that, to listen for that. Mm. Yeah, this pick slide sounds like like a jumbo jet coming into land almost. Yeah, uh, and then it goes right into Mass Confusion, written by Chuck, Merrill, and Phil. Uh, I like Merrill's spoken part. It's very Rollins-esque. Push to the edge, my sanity wears thin. I seek to destroy the system from within. The way Philo and, and Chuck are, are doubling each other on this is just so cool. Like, this song rules big time for me. Yeah. It gave me, like, rat's eyes vibes. Yeah, totally. Totally. Right? Yeah. Yeah. In a good way, though. Yeah. Uh, the next one is a Chuck solo right called Monster. If King of the Pit was Swa plays Ramones, then this is Swa playing the blues. As Philo mentions, Chuck re-recorded this track in 2011 for his short-lived project Blackface, which was Chuck on bass, his son Milo on guitar, Oxbow drummer Tim Dobro, and Oxbow vocalist Eugene Robinson. I would not have remembered that that uh, they had done that had Philo not mentioned it. It's a very different version. The main bass riff is different. The counter melody is different on guitar. Uh, it's got a lot of wah pedal in it. This version is vastly superior, in my opinion. Yeah. The guitar is just noise. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's good. Like it's, it's, uh, it fits the song, but you know, there's no power chords. Yeah. And if you're listening to this on vinyl, this is the end of side one, by the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, track eight on the CD, Wasting My Time, written by Merrill. For sure a Merrill song, like Phil says, Merrill songs in the SWA catalog have their own sound. Definitely more straightforward, but it still sounds like SWA. Lyrically, too, it's it's a love song. When it starts rocking out halfway through, while I'm a laser beam burning down from above <laughs> on a suicide suicide mission of love, I have to say, also, of all the swa guitarists, I think Philo was the best fit. 
it must have been, like I said in the interview, a real challenge for him to find his place on some of these songs. And his style, I think, just suits the band perfectly. I love his solo on this song. It's noisy but melodic. The entire band were incredible players. Greg Cameron had really come into his own by this album also. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, I know he's been critical maybe of his own playing as being kind of uh, you know derivative of Bill Stevenson's because he was such a huge influence, but he stands up with the best of the best on this record, I think. I know. Rock yeah. solid drumming. Track nine, Chances Are, written by Chuck and Merrill. This has just a killer riff from Philo. The drum sound on this record, too, is really good. Like, it's a real live sound. Mm-hmm. Um, this this is one of those songs that's kind of over just as soon as you're getting into it, though. It's another pop-sounding song yeah. compared to other ones on the record. Headphones, written by Chuck and Merrill. This is the other one we heard on the um, program Annihilator 2 comp. Not my favorite on the album. Um, the lyrics are kind of cheesy. <laughs> this is the one that starts off with the with the line i met a girl down at the record store i saw her buy herself a new cd said i'd show her what that thing was for if she'd like to come home with me (laughs) yeah i wrote down that it has like a cheesy 70s rock feel to it this song yeah another crazy arrangement though yeah like like it's crazy yeah for sure uh the next one is talking behind your back written by chuck and merrill um this one also credits Phil with backing vocals. I think that's him going, yeah, man, I heard that, but I don't believe it. Uh, there's some wild stuff going on in this song. I, I like. I honestly don't know how they played some of these songs. There's just so much going on in some of them. It's it's probably a good thing this wasn't a double album. Like, can you imagine? It'd be pretty, pretty dense. Yeah. You'd be fatigued by the end, I would say. But you listen to it on CD. Yeah, well, it's over an hour long on CD. So. Yeah, yeah. I only have it on LP. Uh, the next one is The Man Upstairs, written by Merrill. A really interesting track lyrically. Very theatrical delivery from Merrill. It almost reminds me of Jack Grissom at times. I've probably compared him to Jack Grissom before. It's kind of a creepy song with those backing vocals and the somber kind of riff. A weird way to end the album, I would say. Mm-hmm. It's an epic track, though. Yeah. Uh, unless you're listening on CD or cassette, in which case you'll want to strap in for another 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a wild ride because it's all improvised. Yeah. When I read up about this track, Bad Acid, it sounds like it was a uh, like a highlight live. Oh, I think man. It... Well, like he says, they opened their sweat set with it sometimes. Yeah. Um, it's 14 and a half minutes long. Heavy Black Flag vibes with Greg on the toms. The pick scraping, Merrill's Rollins-esque rap, like, don't worry, you're with me. Uh, sounds like sounds like a dealer, hey? Yeah. Yeah, you know Chuck just loved to jam, too. I Like, I bet they did this kind of thing a lot at rehearsal, mm-hmm. just jamming like this. Phil, you know, it's cool when they go into the kind of the pulsing bass part, and Merrill's talking about opening up your mind and, and stuff like that. His lyrics for this are just awesome. Lost in this land of illusions, we have arrived. Immaculate confusion makes our senses crystallize. Come awake from your sleep of reason. Melt into my arms. We'll escape. Move inside my chest, shrinking at your charms. This was a, definitely a highlight for me, I would say. This should have probably been on the on the LP, maybe. Bad Acid? And a couple of others, maybe not, like headphones or something. Uh, the next one, Desire, doesn't really work for me. Kind of the weakest of the, the three jams, in my opinion. 
This one's got Rat's Eyes-esque vocals again for me too. Yeah. And then the last one is I Want to Know, written by Chuck and Merrill. This track is all right, kind of a dirge. Phil's noodling and Merrill's vocals kind of salvage it for me. Like, what you got to say, Mr. Mr. President? Fill me in, Miss Prime Minister. What you been hiding, Mr. Premier? Let us in on your secret. <laughs> I want to know. Yeah. I totally love this record. Anyone who has written off SWA because of this bullshit narrative that, you know, they're the worst band on SST or that kind of crap that people say should give this album a serious listen. This, to me, is the best SWA album by a long shot and one of my actual favorites that we've heard in a long while outside of like the, the well-known stuff like Firehose and things like that. I loved this record, man. I couldn't get enough of it this week. Yeah, that's good. I would agree. And I w- just gained a whole new appreciation for the players. Um, I hadn't really listened to Phil this way and because uh, I know him from the Jack Brewer brand mostly, I would say. And the, the vocal, I mean, the Merrill's vocals are what they are. They're pretty, they're pretty solid on all the records, but Chuck and Greg really shone through for me too. Yeah. When we get to like episode 300 and we look back at, you know, that little challenge we did last time, like pick your five dark horses. This is in, this will be in there. I guarantee it. I just loved it, man. The artwork is super bare bones, you know, probably intentionally because of the theme winter. Um, We pretty well cover off the photo shoot in the interview. Another classic Naomi Peterson SST cover for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, out on the salt flats. Meant to look like, I I think you're probably right, hey? Like a nuclear winter. Yeah. Just like under the hot sun, but on the snow. Yeah. Any dead wax on this one, Ryan? Not on my copy. And my copy is... Like, I'm pretty sure mine's an original, and it is so beat up. Well, I'm not even sure they repressed it. Maybe they did. Mine is a cutout, and it's all bent all over. There's like, it's a it's a survivor, this SWA record. It survived a nuclear winter, maybe? It did. Yeah. It totally did. You'll see it in the pictures. <laughs> it's from the SWA manifesto. If there was ever a nuclear attack, the only thing that would survive would be cockroaches and SWA. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I love that. (laughs) Ballot result? Yeah, man. Ballot result. All right. This is a, this is a Brant pick. Well, I want to hear, I want to hear what your favorites were. Oh, well, I mean, I loved winter and I thought that, uh, the man upstairs was pretty epic. Like Mm -hmm. I thought, I thought that that was a great one. Um, I didn't really like the, the pop songs as much like, uh, King of the Pit or Chances Are. I I preferred kind of the weird stuff. Yep. I would say like uh, Mass Confusion. I liked Monster. Even even Monster, where, where it was like didn't have much guitar melody going on. I thought it was a pretty killer track. Wasting my time was a uh, I don't know. I, I know it doesn't sound like Dio, but for me, wasting my time sounds like Dio to me. And I know it. I know that's wrong, but I was like, I was into wasting my time too. So, well, I guarantee you, these dudes were listening to Dio. My favorites were Winter, Goddess, Wasting My Time. But for me, the ballot result has got to be between Conquest, Mass Confusion, or Bad Acid. Where are we at on this? Like, because I got to think about like, where's Bad Acid fitting on our comp tape? Well, it's coming right after that Henry Kaiser, like. Uh, 
Yeah, but it's not the end. We've got a couple it's almost more tracks. Yeah. It's almost the end, but like I feel like people might miss out on a couple of good tracks if we put Bad Acid as third last on side two. Oh no, people are, I think people would rock to Bad Acid. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well you pick. We're gonna do Bad Acid, man. Okay. Yep. All right, man. Woo. Hey, thanks, Philo, for being on the show. It was great chatting with Phil. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brant, it's SST 239, one of our faves, Trotsky Ice Pick with the Poison Summer LP, and we've got a special guest. You bet. Vitas Matare is going to be on the show. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.